Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Intermezzo 15. As we start, we'd like to give a big thank you to Robin Pearson at the History of Byzantium podcast. This is certainly one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, and they answered a question that we at Lapsus Lima had and uh, gave us a mention in the last episode. So please uh, check them out, uh, do a search within iTunes or on the web for the History of Byzantium podcast. You'll find a truly wonderful analysis of fascinating periods of history. And now, our episode. The early 20th century was a time when, despite great injustice and a stubborn legacy of oppression, daily life was steadily and significantly improving for almost everyone in the West. Among those who considered themselves particularly awake, though, a sense of dread hung in the air. Future Bauhaus master Vasily Kandinsky had written in 1911, the solitary visionaries are despised or regarded as abnormal and eccentric. Those who are not wrapped in lethargy and who feel vague longings for spiritual life and knowledge and progress cry in harsh chorus without any to comfort them. The night of the spirit falls more and more darkly. Deeper becomes the misery of these blind and terrified guides and their followers tormented and unnerved by fear and doubt prefer to this gradual darkening the final sudden leap into the blackness. At such a time, art ministers to lower needs and is used for material ends. Given the scene thus described, can anyone express sincere surprise, either at how, on the one hand, art in the 21st century has been for some time consumed by a desperate political utilitarianism, and, on the other, by an entrenched nihilism that has been practically begging for the results of this recent election. Fifteen years past 9-11, 11-9 was a messy morning after, filled with embarrassment, hazy memories, finger-pointing, and half-meant apologies. But none of this can mask the fact that in the heat of the moment, both sides wanted it. The right has the advantage of being more or less honest about it, while the left is still kidding itself. Proof came quickly enough. Mass protests sprang up the day immediately after the election. Thousands of young people were made happier by screaming in the streets about something they could no longer control 
than by making phone calls for voter registration or other less dramatic but more productive activities that didn't scratch the itch of self-righteous indignation. Is this illogical? Of course it is. But the tenor of our times is not one of reason. Very few things in the world are as reliable as the stars. Ever since the Neolithic, people looked up to the sky for guidance on seasons, floods, and the tides. From astrology through alchemy to quantum physics, persistent efforts have been made to somehow model the predictable nature of the heavens down as far as possible into other aspects of our lives. But we all know how complex the world can be. No one, even today, expects to predict the weather a day in advance with perfect accuracy. Yet, the fact that humans retain a degree of control over our own actions allows us to convince ourselves that human behavior can be modeled in a quantifiable manner. This approach works just well enough so as to be truly dangerous. Not since the economic collapse of 2008 has there been so much fumbling among quantitative analysts. The pollsters and the popular press were bending over backwards, either to say, who could have seen this coming, or to cover their rears by saying that they factored in the possibility of a Trump victory the whole time. After all, a 25% chance of winning is just that. Ignored by all sides of this argument is the attention that must be paid to the qualitative, and specifically to desire. Donald Trump as president is the creation of the American repressed. This podcast's prior comment on the election, September 19th's Make America Deflate Again, in which we argued that, no matter what the result of the election, the bloodlust that pushed Trump to the nomination would remain a political fact, pointed out that there's a very deeply rooted urge in American politics, and probably in humanity at large, to move toward despotism in times of disruptive change. The numbers bear this out. Part of the reason that Hillary lost was an over-reliance on sound yet fallacious reasoning. The facts were plain. Trump is sexist. Trump is racist. Trump will favor the rich over the working class. But this election was not about facts, and the New York Times exit polling data showed it. 42% of women voted for Trump, a number barely different from the 2012 results where 43% of women voted for Romney. Trump openly scorned Latinos and took a huge hit in the polls after defaming a judge of Mexican descent. Yet, 
29% of Hispanics voted for Trump, 8% more for the Republicans than in 2012. Just like the Irish once looked down on Italians, recent immigrants shun competitive newcomers. But this reaction is sentiment-based and not as amenable to spreadsheet analysis. What the Clinton campaign, most of the media, and the so-called liberal elites in general failed to perceive is how the facts were failing and why this mattered. There was a mind-numbing blindness to the resurgence of what Spengler called blood-feeling, the sentiment at the root of the formation of the concept of race which is not based on scientifically measurable heritage, place of birth, DNA, ethnicity, or anything that fits a census form. The most influential form of racial feeling in the course of human history is the common bond sprung through shared suffering. This is exactly why those very same once-rival Irish and Italians, considered in times past by the American elites as barely human, have ceased to be non-white in the calculus of U.S. racial sentiment. This shifting of race is an observable dynamic, and not, as it is frequently painted, a historical anomaly. Like it or not, and we at Lapsus Lima certainly do not, Trump intuitively understood these shifting racial qualities. Anyone who wanted to do the right thing, or the smart thing, voted for Hillary. Everyone who felt wronged voted for Trump. That power of sentiment is also why Bernie Sanders could have won the general election. Shared suffering across class lines was the focus of his message. But this tactical advantage was only tangentially due to the so-called enthusiasm gap. The media was incredibly slow to wake up to something that we have long since remarked upon. Namely, that the political world is realigning away from the old left and right and into what they call insider and outsider politics, what we prefer to frame as the ancient asymmetry of populares versus optimates. Both the enthusiasm gap and even the late acknowledged analogy to populist sentiment are not substantially rooted qualities, but they are significant epiphenomena that work both as symptoms and signals. There is a specific reason why facts do not count for much lately. The reason is the world is changing drastically and rapidly, and people feel it. Appeals to reason, 
and the cool collection of data will never contravene the convictions that people already hold about their own lives. Draped in a mantle of facts, Hillary behaved as if she was born to the purple. All that rhetoric about glass ceilings and little girls who could do anything they dreamed of was not much more than a transparent projection of her own ego. Her personal desire for power. She may have genuinely believed that hers was a desire for power to do good in the world, but her naked hunger for office was apparent. And it was her campaign's fatal flaw that she conflated her own ambition to be a boundary-breaking president with the electorate's need to break the system itself. Faced with another term of moderate Clintonian compromise within a dangerously hobbled system, a more and more desperate public especially in the swing states of the upper Midwest, chose to, as Kandinsky put it, take the final sudden leap into the blackness. Even though we are in a historical moment where much is uncertain, history has crossed similar thresholds often enough that we can see the shape, if not the details, of what is happening. Because we are at a very significant threshold, sentiment weighs upon people more heavily than fact. It is a consistent sign of transition and transformation that, as soon as people are convinced that a predictive system can explain everything, uncertainty will reassert its presence. When civilization is refined to the point of convincing itself that all can be clearly measured and analyzed, whenever it succumbs to this cerebral lack of vitality, life kicks back. We have yet to internalize the Nietzschean insight that human history lives on a heartbeat of Kultur and civilization. When a complex culture begins, people with sharp elbows and little respect for rules break away from tradition. If this expansive energy, this particular leap into blackness, leads to establishing a new system, then the criminal or lunatic of the past becomes a hero of the future. Eventually, the transition moves from a collection of energy to a dispersal of energy. This is the time of civilization. In historiography, it is often known as decline, despite the fact that these are usually the most agreeable of times to live in. Zooming out a couple thousand years, we can clearly see the outlines of, to give a case, the ancient Mediterranean. The Homeric heroes of the Iron Age possibly overlapped with the very sea peoples 
who devastated the coasts of the civilized Levant. Tales of the Iliad and Aeneas were still ringing in the ears of the Romans as they battled the Persians in the crisis of the 3rd century, but this was the rear-guard defense of an established order, not the outburst of the Greek colonial energy that had transpired centuries before. But it is important to remember that, from a Roman perspective, this seemed like a glorious expansion all the same. When Diocletian and Constantine dismantled all Augustinian pretense to republican institutions and reformed the empire into the militarized structure that would give rise to Byzantium, fourth-century mosaics in wealthy villas did not yet carry the gloom of medieval Christian thought. They did not read Pray for us in this time of decadence, or save us from the Goths, but rather spoke of things like an age of prosperity, or a world restored. They may have well praised Diocletian for making Rome great again. The narcotic effect of decadent prosperity can invite collapse by making it easy and even pleasant to neglect decline. The United States stands at a crossroads in so many ways. Whatever direction is taken, Trump embodies two things. A nihilistic yearning for release from the extant order and the simultaneous restoration of imagined greatness from times past. He is thus a kultur hero. At the same time, what has become the old order, the established institutions of the Republic, are convinced that Trump cannot or will not conduct the government along unprecedented lines. They were also convinced that he could not win the primary, or the election for that matter. Now, for whatever reason, they are convinced that they can stop him with thousands of screaming kids as the first recourse to action. This man cannot be restrained by a reassertion of democratic values and institutions, though such efforts may slow him down. The thing to be done is what should have been proposed to begin with. Find a transformational process or figure that's preferable to him. This would, however, leave us with the recalcitrance of the legislature, which brought us to this point to begin with. Obama always wanted to work with Congress. He wanted to transform without breaking anything. And that is part of why his progress was so limited. We should not be so naive as to think Sanders would have been any more respectful of institutions than Trump.
his ideology may be more acceptable to many. But when he said revolution, he meant it. When asked how he would confront a do-nothing Congress, Bernie proposed that he would amass thousands of protesters outside Capitol Hill and strong-arm the legislature. Regardless of how different his goals were from Trump's, his mass appeal and willingness to mobilize popular sentiment remain the same. The American government has not been evolving and changing on its own, so now it is breaking under its own weight. Civilization can delay, but it can never stop culture.